Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. Dr. Michael D'Angelica is a surgical oncologist and hepatobiliary surgeon at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He is world-renowned for both his research and clinical expertise in the treatment of colorectal liver metastases. We got to pick his brain on this episode for his approach to colorectal liver mets, as well as some of his broader advice for prospective fellows and his experience living in New York through the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. D'Angelica, thank you so much for joining us on Cold Steel. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you grew up and your training pathway? Uh, sure. Uh, I'm, I spent most of my life in the New York area, certainly most of my life in the Northeast United States. Uh, actually, believe it or not, I was born in California, but uh, at the ripe age of 15 months, my parents who had briefly gone out to California uh, moved back to New York where they were originally from. And I grew up in the New York area, really just outside of New York City. Um, farthest I got away was to go to school in Boston and uh, trained in Connecticut and um, and uh, did my general surgery at the University of Connecticut. And I would say that uh, probably what impacted my career was uh, doing a research fellowship during that residency at Memorial Sloan Kettering, which really led to my career, to be honest. It, it sort of got me the fellowship at Memorial and uh, ultimately being hired there and sort of that probably had the biggest impact on becoming a surgical oncologist and an hepatobiliary surgeon within that field. Um, uh, yeah, no, I think I'm a New Yorker to the core. Uh, I live in New Jersey now, and my parents thought that was sort of similar to moving to Alabama, but uh, that's a that's sort of a New York feel about things. <laughs> um, but I've lived in New York City in that area uh, for most of my life. Well, that's that's interesting. Did, did you always sort of have the assumption that you would end up working in the greater New York area or were you kind of open to wherever life took you? I was totally open to wherever life took me. Uh, it just, I, I, it all sometimes looks like a planned thing, but it, it really isn't. Um, it's, I, I could have easily ended up training somewhere else. Um, I, I would say life is just full of twists and turns. And uh, I think the people who tell you they've got it all planned are not really telling you the whole story. Uh, I, I think you come off, like, oh, this guy's a, from New York and this is his only thing. But it was totally random. It was totally um, just the way things fell. Um, uh, never, never, that was never the plan necessarily. The plan uh -huh. was uh, be a doctor, be a surgeon, be a surgical oncologist, then be a patibiliary surgeon, and then uh, try to make a difference. That was really the plan, not where you do it. Oh, that's so interesting. You, you know, your your group obviously at Memorial Sloan Kettering is not only world renowned, but 
you know, and I'm biased, I get it, but uh, I would certainly make the argument you guys have the greatest core group um, maybe in North America. I mean, you, you seem from the outside to get along so well. You guys are so productive. Uh, you seem very cohesive, although certainly every group has speed bumps. I get it. But uh, how does the dynamic in that in that group work? And, and honestly, like, how, how, how great is it to be part of it? Yeah, it's a good question, Chad. I, I'm really glad that we come off that way. And I, and I think, of course, like you say, there are bumps, but um, I, I think that's part of the success. You know, it's a, it's a group who sort of checks their ego at the door. There's no lack of ego in our group, but, but we work well together. Um, and I think like everything, it, it came from the top. You know, uh, when Leslie Bloomgard really started the group, he... Um, I, I don't know how, 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 how exactly he did it, but I, I think his feel was inclusivity. And, you know, he'd invite you down to the OR and, and say, hey, help me with this, or what do you think of that? And then he'd bring you to his clinic when you were first starting and say, hey, you take care of these cases for me and, and help develop your practice. And um, uh, he, he sort of led the way that way. And I think that set the tone from the beginning, and it's sort of continued since then. Um, I also think we're able to work in a system where there's quote unquote plenty to go around. There's lots of resources. There's a very high volume of patients and that allows, um, I think there's less competition among people and that allows for it. So I think it's um, the hospital itself, the leadership. And, and I guess I have to give credit to the people that I've worked with and it's uh, the group has evolved that I've worked with over the last 18 years. When I first started, it was uh, Bloomgard, Fong and Jarnigan DiMatteo and um, you know Jarnigan that group is the only one left so it's a it's a younger group of people now but it's um, I think the spirit is the same and it's uh, an amazing place to work and I would be remiss not to give credit to the group and to the system that I work in that uh, uh, for some of the things that we've accomplished. Dr. Dinjalaka you're known for many many things but I think colorectal liver metastasis is something you clearly had a huge passion for uh, and you kind of talked about this in, in your training pathway that you know you kind of had this that you're going to become a surgical oncologist and HPV surgeon and and then colorectal liver metastases is, seems to be a part of that whole evolution why colorectal liver metastases like what's prompted that that passion in that topic yeah well you know I, I, again I could claim it was all some big plan but that, that would be dishonest when I was training you know HPV surgery was not such a common or popular specialty really um i was going to be a surgical oncologist quote unquote and be do all the big cancer operations in the belly and um that drove me and uh, i always did love operating in the upper abdomen and uh, i always was fascinated by liver metastases and the, the, the surgical impact of them but i never really knew that i would be able to make a career out of it until i was hired onto a service that that sort of gave me that opportunity um and I would say, you know, it's interesting when I first started, believe it or not, my, my, I was sort of behind some pretty famous people. And, um, really what I started studying in the very beginning of my career was minimally invasive surgery. Uh, believe it or not, I was one of the few people who did minimally invasive surgery back then. And I studied ablation, which was a kind of new technique at the time. And then things shifted in the service. And, uh, um, I have to give credit to, to Bloomgard. And to actually to Nancy Kemeny and um, sort of practices developed and interest developed and you start studying something. And 
uh, I think two things got my interest about colorectal cancer and the, the liver. One was the fascinating biologic um, observation that removing a metastasis can actually cure a patient, which goes against everything we understand about cancer. Um, and that's without chemotherapy. Um, and the second thing that was interesting at the time, while everybody was getting away from intraarterial chemotherapy, Nancy Kemeny, and I give her so much credit for this, persisted and um, continued to study it. And uh, she was so giving and gracious to me and allowed me to be part of her trials and help, you know, we developed trials together. And so it, it just sort of um, came together for something that I, I really enjoyed and was passionate about, and then was given the opportunity to study in terms of studying the natural history and, and developing clinical trials and translational work. And uh, it, I don't know, sometimes I feel like it's kind of lucky, but I also think it's luck comes from taking advantage of opportunities. And I, and I think it's a combination of those two that, that happened, uh, but it is a fascinating surgical thing to think that um, a disease in which patients were sent home to die 30 years ago, is now potentially curable with surgery and, and some other adjuvant therapies. Uh, to me, that's the most fascinating thing that I get to do every day. That's, that's very well said, Mike. You know, our, our listeners are, are uh, a big proportion of them anyway, general surgeons from across Canada and Australia and really the world. And, I, you know, I, I'm hopeful that maybe we can take a, a moment and, and delve into colorectal liver metastases a, a little bit more deeply because um, it, it certainly applies to all of us, whether you work in a community setting or an academic setting, low volume, high volume, whatever that means. So I, I was wondering if, if you could sort of frame uh, the entire topic at a 30,000 foot level for, for our listeners. In other words, how, how common is having colorectal liver metastases um, and, and, and what does that landscape look like at the, at the very uh, broadest level? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, obviously colorectal cancer in the Western world and now epidemiologically growing in the Eastern world, probably as, you know, dietary habits and uh, a change, um, it, it's a very common disease. Um, probably upwards of 50%, although I think that's an overestimation in, in, in probably the United States or North America, it's probably somewhere between 30 to 50% of patients with colorectal cancer will develop liver metastases. And yes, I think the 30,000 foot look is that um, most of those people are treated with systemic chemotherapy and non-surgical interventions. Um, but I think the key thing that everybody, whether you're a surgeon, a medical oncologist, or just a primary care doc, uh, or anybody taking care of patients should understand is that there's a subset of those patients who really are not quote unquote stage four cancer that are only treated with palliative chemotherapy that that are potentially curable with surgery and other other ongoing treatments and i think the really important point is that look for the look for the patients who really are those candidates and get them to the right person um to really think a little bit about it and not just say and i still see patients today who young healthy people who were told you know with with very resectable liver metastases who are told you have chemo and you have two years to live and that, and that's it. And then you look at them going, no, 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 no. Wow. You, you have resectable disease, you know, with, with various approaches, we have a chance to cure you. We have um, certainly a chance to provide long-term survival for you uh, perhaps with chronic treatment, but uh, even with less than that. And so I think the really critical point is it's a common disease. 
but understand there's a subset of it that's potentially curable and get them to the right people. Uh, and I think it's important to educate yourself a little bit about that so that you have a sense of who those people are. Yeah, you know, you know, I'm I'm glad you said that. The, the the truth is, I think if you have a high enough volume liver practice, we all see that on a, a disappointingly regular basis. And that's not to uh, disparage any of these other physicians that groups that you mentioned, but uh, I I couldn't agree more. It, it's so important to try and get these patients, um, you know, to the to the sites and the multidisciplinary groups that can make those decisions and try and cure them. And I, I think that's another important important point too. And you know, you're you're well known for saying this, and you're exactly right that although the liver surgeon may be the sequencer and the ultimate decision maker, this is a real team sport. You know, yeah. what we do in the, in, in a vacuum or in a silo, we need our medical oncology colleagues, whether it's, you know, Nancy or whether it's a, a, a run of the mill medical oncologist or radiation oncologist or palliative care. Like it's a big group. And, and that's what centers like yours and, you know, many of the, the liver centers across Canada are, are built to do. Hey, um, is to try and look after these people. I, yeah, I, yeah I, I'm curious Great. in particular, um, when a patient walks in and you're talking to them about that, about that concept, how, how do you deliver that news and how do you frame that? Um, you know, I, I assume most people who get to you know they have liver mets and they're coming to a liver surgeon, but um, how do you maybe put them at ease or, or frame the whole voyage, which as we know can be a very long one? Yeah, it is interesting. I, I think some people come, you know, these the sort of highly educated group comes sort of knowing in a way what, what's going to be talked about. Uh, but there's a group of people who still show up and they're not quite sure why they're there. You know, they're like, my oncologist told me to come see you. And it's it, that was the level of discussion. Um, not even really sure what I would say to them. I, I think the discussion, actually, it's a great point, Chad, is it, not really talked about. How should you talk to patients about this? Um, it sort of depends on the stage of the disease, but if you take the patients with straightforward resectable colorectal mets, um, I, I sort of, I'm not a huge fan of telling, giving people detailed statistics. I'm always telling people like I could give you the statistics, but you know, to, to, to think that you're going to be the mean or the median or the average is not accurate. It's more important that we give you the range of outcomes here. And so I, I actually try to simplify it as best I can in terms of, you know, for straightforward resectable disease, I say there's three groups and I'll start with the bad. The bad is we do this operation um, and whatever other treatment we give you around the time of surgery and it doesn't go well, you recur quickly and you, you end up on chemotherapy. And I think it's super important that you talk about the bad. Um, and then I say, well, let's talk about the really good. The really good is we do this and it never comes back and uh, you're cured. And that's, that is an, a reality. That is not a, um, a made up outcome. That's a real outcome. And then I say, well, there's also a sort of third group that I think also is a good one. And one is that it comes back, but it's still manageable. And you may not be cured, but you can be managed for many, many years. Um, and I think that's a particularly relevant group, relevant outcome for the younger people. And I really do think about this. If you're 80 years old, you might not be so concerned about that group. But if you're a 40 year old with young kids and it's important that you, I don't know, see them get married or see them uh, go to uh, their graduate high school graduation or whatever it is, getting that extra period of time, even if it is difficult in chronic therapy, may be well worth it to them. And um, 
those are the three groups that I kind of put it into. I, I think there's a, a spectrum of staging of the disease where, you know, the outcomes are a little different. Uh, but I think for the straightforward resectable one, those are the three ways I think about it. Yeah, I think I think that's brilliant. And, you know, I, I probably emulated it from you, but that, that's what I try and do too. And, I, you know, I always make the statement, yeah, your, your median survival of this language that we use is only good on a population basis. It has very little relevance to you as the individual. Right. I think that's probably, you know, when you say, you know, we all have friends and family and meet folks every day that say, my uncle had cancer X and they told him he was going to die in nine nine months and he's alive 29 months later. Well, that's probably because he was given some median number that had no relevance to his biology. Yeah. My my least favorite thing to do is to hear that my doctor told me I had a year to live and that's crazy. Like there's a time clock above them that's going to go off suddenly in one year is just an insane way to think about biology or medicine. Dr. D'Angelica, what's your approach? Uh, you know, like you have this patient, you sort of broken the news to them that they have colorectal liver mets. How do you approach uh, working these people up? Is there any other, uh, you know, specifically imaging or uh, workup that you uh, would do? Or is it usually that kind of people have already been worked up as much as uh, they need to be by the time they get to you? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really pretty simple. I mean, I think really what people need is good quality cross-sectional imaging. And it, I think in most of our centers, we probably end up repeating repeat a lot of imaging. Unfortunately, there's a lot of heterogeneity in how CAT scans or MRIs are done. Um, you know, and it comes down to a lot of details that a lot of people don't appreciate, you know, how contrast is administered, um, how uh, how much radiation they use for the for the CAT scan. There's a sort of trend to giving less radiation, which of course gives you um, uh, very suboptimal pictures. Um, so I think straightforward, good cross-sectional imaging of the chest, abdomen, pelvis. Um, if the primary is removed or, or, or they've, you know, they need a colonoscopy sort of within a year or so of their diagnosis. Of course, if it's synchronous disease, you have to work with a, someone who does the colorectal part of the operation to assess the primary tumor. Um, I think PET scan has been largely discredited by a randomized trial done out of Toronto. Uh, the yield of that is low. I think it's a helpful problem-solving tool if you see some imaging uh, findings that um, are concerning, but you're not sure. So it can be a targeted or, or selective use of PET. There's a lot of data now that MRI of the liver with EOVIST or at a petabiliary contrast can better stage the liver. And I think that's a reasonable thing to do. It's particularly helpful for patients who've been on chemotherapy uh, or who have a fatty liver. Um, although I have to say my anecdotal experience is that it doesn't change much if you have good imaging to begin with before they start chemotherapy, but I think it's quite reasonable to use MRI pretty liberally. And, and that's really it. I don't think you need much more than that. I think, uh, that that's really the bottom line. I think one of the perennial questions that, uh, you know, everyone str- struggles with, uh, whether, whether you're studying for your, your board exams or if you're, you're not actual practicing, uh, colorectal or, or, uh, HPV surgeon is is the timing of uh, chemotherapy versus upfront surgery. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Like, how what's your paradigm in terms of uh, the timing and sequencing of uh, various therapies? Yeah, when I talk about that, I think I um, and I do think the biggest problem is the overuse of chemotherapy, in particular in patients with straightforward resectable disease. And so, what I mean by that is limited number of tumors in the liver, no extra hepatic disease, as best you can tell on your workup. 
um, and an otherwise healthy patient. Um, so, you know, the number of tumors is debatable, but let's say four or less tumors or something like that, because those patients are potentially curable with surgery. And uh, I would say that, um, I would say that uh, the chemotherapy, despite the fact that it's so popular to use, is, doesn't change the outcome after surgery based on randomized trials. So, and the chemotherapy beforehand for that actually doesn't help you select patients. The truth is, in two or three months, 95% of those people will have stable or responsive disease. So to use chemotherapy, which, by the way, has its own set of very serious complications. I mean, neuropathy from oxaliplatin is a real serious problem for patients. Um, so to give a, a bunch of drugs that won't really help you select patients very well, um, that doesn't necessarily improve survival, or if it does improve survival, it's by a very small amount. Um, so I'm not a fan of giving chemotherapy. Now, the use of chemotherapy in patients with, say, higher stage disease or where shrinking the tumors will really help, will really help situation in terms of shrinking tumors is very helpful. You know, so if you can change an operation to a more parenchymal preserving operation or a safer operation with chemo, that's helpful. Um, so I'm not a huge fan of it just to give it for the heck of it because it doesn't really make a difference. Um, but... Uh, the, the difference, the, the other situation is people with more advanced disease. You've got 20 tumors in your liver or you have limited extrahepatic disease. The role of chemo there is much more important. So that, that's a different situation uh, where I think more liberal use of chemo. But I'm constantly fighting with people who want to keep giving more and more chemotherapy to people with potentially curable disease with surgery. We know it changes. We know it provides side effects on patients. We know it uh, complicates surgery a bit. Every liver surgeon now is starting to see the quote-unquote ugly chemo liver. And um, uh, so I, I'm always constantly fighting the overuse of chemotherapy. I guess that's the best way I, I would say it. Um, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense and, and is a very good approach. But also, it, I mean, it underscores again, that every patient's uh, individualized and uh, requires uh, individualized planning and, and thought uh, when, when deciding their treatment sequence and therapy. Um, I was curious, you know, a lot of, a lot of junior residents and, and potentially medical students listening to this podcast, can you define what the difference is between metachronous and synchronous colorectal liver mets uh, are? And uh, does that kind of change uh, how you think about uh, the workup planning for um, their treatment? Yeah, so I, I, it's a great question. I actually think the biggest mistake people make uh, is that they try to look at those two uh, synchronous and metachronous disease as totally uh, biologically different situations. Um, they're probably not. They're probably all really synchronous disease that just takes some time to sort of show itself on scans. Um, I, I think that I think the most practical way to think about it is synchronous disease is when you're diagnosed with colorectal cancer on the skin imaging study, you see metastases at that time. From a biologic point of view, people sort of have divided it if you find it within one year of diagnosis. Um, and uh, that I think that's a helpful way to think about it biologically, but I don't think it's a helpful way to think about it practically from a point of view of treatment. The real treatment problems is when you have got a colon tumor or a rectal tumor in place and metastases at the same time, then it becomes different. Um, I don't necessarily think it changes the surgery, um, but it often changes the preoperative therapy, particularly for rectal cancer, because the paradigm for rectal cancer 
um, which I think has not uh, really been applied in every hospital, but is coming soon, is probably going to be the use of total neoadjuvant therapy with a significant percentage of patients never needing surgery. Um, so the use of chemo and radiation and prolonged periods of chemotherapy and radiation uh, in rectal cancer complicates the treatment of the liver disease. And I can't say that I have an answer, but um, my first question is usually, tell me what you need to do for the rectal cancer. And then we'll sort of work in how we want to manage the liver metastases. And that almost always involves some neoadjuvant therapy because that is a well-founded idea. If you can give chemo and radiation and then never need an APR or a low anterior resection, that, that really is a game changer for a lot of people. For colon cancer, I think it's more straightforward. I think it's stage the liver disease. And, uh, and, and if it's surgical, I think you do it. it uh, but again, I want to say very clearly, I think the idea that synchronous presentation is an absolute bad prognostic factor is a complete misinterpretation of data. Most studies do not show it as a major prognostic factor. And I think you should think about it the same way as if it shows up six months or a year later. That's so well said, Mike. Th thank you. You know, a little bit earlier, you, you mentioned Dr. Kemeny. Uh, and um, sort of very briefly touched on hepatic arterial chemo infusion. For our listeners who may not be familiar with that, could you sort of give us a, a ballpark technical description and as well as when, when, uh, when you uh, guys particularly use it and when you don't? Sure. So hepatic artery chemotherapy is really a fascinating uh, therapy. It's based on studies done in the 1950s that show that liver metastases are largely fed by the hepatic artery whereas the liver has sort of the dual blood supply. So it gives you a mechanical advantage to deliver a therapeutic to a tumor and spare the normal liver. And the way we give it, we give it with a drug called floxuridine or known as FUDR. And the cool thing about that drug is that it is totally metabolized by the liver. So if you infuse it into the liver, it, it really is completely taken up by the liver. So you basically have this sort of really cool pharmacokinetic advantage of giving high-dose chemotherapy without physically isolating the liver, just using sort of pharmacokinetics. And, and you give, by infusing it into an artery, you're able to give high-dose chemotherapy and isolating it to a single organ. Um, and this is really old stuff. This has been worked out in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and it's really kind of interesting. That's what, what's old is new again. And really what, what, in unresectable disease, I mean, the response rate to, to combinations of, of hepatic artery and systemic chemotherapy are very, very high. Both in the first line, it's 90, at least 90%. In the second line, it's 50 to 75%. And if you compare that to systemic therapy, it's nearly double the response rates for systemic therapy. So for unresectable patients, it's, it's an extraordinary treatment. And I think the interesting historical thing was in the 1990s when quote-unquote modern chemotherapy, which by the way is no longer modern, it's 20 years old now, um, uh, came around, a lot of people abandoned hepatic artery chemotherapy. And I have to give credit to Nancy Kemeny. She said, no, let's not abandon it. Let's combine it with systemic chemotherapy. And that's exactly what we've done and shown these very high response rates, conversion to resection, um, and even cure for, for a group of patients. Um, but the other way to think about it is adjuvant therapy after complete resection, which makes most people very uncomfortable. But if you look at the data, the truth is adjuvant systemic chemo alone does not improve overall survival based on multiple randomized trials. 
whereas a single trial done in the 1990s with uh, pump chemotherapy really did show a durable long-term progression-free survival advantage uh, to pump chemotherapy. And there really has not been a modern trial that's compared the two again. I and mean, we like to say that it's the only proven adjuvant therapy. And while it's a bit unpopular to say from a strict data point of view, that is actually true. In our long-term survival, if you give adjuvant pump chemotherapy, the difference in survival is two years. The cure rate is probably doubled. Um, so uh, that, that's where we stand. I, I would be remiss to not talk about the toxicity of pump chemotherapy. It can cause very serious biliary sclerosis. That would be a whole long discussion, but there's definitely a downside to it. So when the fellows ask me, who do we do this in? What's the indication for pump chemotherapy? I, I sort of say, um, I sort of say uh, the presence of colorectal liver metastases, because the truth is it hasn't been worked out exactly who among the group is most likely to benefit. It can be unresectable disease. It can be an adjuvant situation where you resected all the disease. So it's all, it's all sort of in there. Uh, that's, a, that's so well described. That's the best way I can do that in five minutes. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that's absolutely superb. You know, I have sort of two other quick questions about it. The, the, the truth is that um, there's many groups across the country and the world really that have tried it, but you know, it's, it's been a challenge, I think, to make that technique commonplace yeah. uh, across the globe. And I'm curious, outside of Dr. Kemeny, and maybe that is the answer, and, and yourself, why do you think that is? And then I'm also curious, as a second part, um, has the improvement of systemic chemotherapy changed your view and your use of that over time as well? Yeah, so I think there's lots of hurdles to using this and to say that it's an easy treatment or that it's a treatment free of problems is, would, be a, would be a terrible disservice. It requires some surgical expertise. Uh, I think people like to think of the operation as a simple one. It, it's not a simple one. I like to tell the fellows it's a thankless operation. If it goes well, nobody cares. And if it, there's a problem, everybody's going to pay attention. But it's, it's, a, it's a real vascular operation. It requires some expertise for sure. And it certainly requires some ability to handle abnormal arterial anatomy and all the compl complexity that comes with that. Um, so there's the surgical bit. There's um, definitely complications that people have to understand. You know, you do occasionally get pseudoaneurysms and you do occasionally get bleeds and you do a, uh, occasionally a catheter will road into the duodenum. And, um, and most importantly, when you're infusing it into a liver, and this is actually much more common in the adjuvant setting, uh, you can get very serious biliary complications. Um, uh, you know, and it's upwards of 5% in the adjuvant setting that that can happen. And that can be a life-threatening complication. It can, um, it's very uncommon and very rare that it's truly life-threatening, but it, uh, but it's a serious problem. And I think it scares people. It's sort of interesting to me that um, people have been less tolerable of that, but they've sort of tolerated things like uh, bevacizumab that has an associated one or 2% rate of bowel perforation, which can be a life-threatening complication as well. So, Every drug has its serious side effects. You know, an oxaliplatin, although it's not life-threatening, um, some people have lifelong neuropathy, which is no minor thing for people to live with. Um, we're learning in pancreas cancer that modified fulfurinox in a neoadjuvant setting has a real mortality rate to it that's probably similar to a pancreatectomy. So all these drugs have prices to pay, but I, I, this, 
I have to say, when you've seen bad biliary sclerosis, it is, it is a scary thing, and it, and it is something that uh, has to be taken very seriously. Well, that's that's interesting. Yeah, there's there's no doubt. I, you know, I I wondered um, if you would do us uh, the favor of um, very superficially, maybe sort of defining or or at least chatting very very briefly about you know one stage hepatectomy versus two stage, what vein mm. embolization is, and maybe the the role or or not the role of of ALPS. Um, yeah. Not not really at the fellowship level, but you know, again, in, in, in maybe just introducing some of these advanced uh, technical um, uh, approaches that, that we use to some of the listeners uh, in, an, in an attempt to, to sort of open, you know, open the curtain, so to speak, and, and encourage some of those referrals. Yeah, I, I, it's a tough one to do in a cursory way, but I think there, there's a couple of really important points. Historically, the presence of quote-unquote bilobar metastases was considered unresectable. And I think some of that still persists a little bit. If it's on both sides of the liver, you can't do it. And, and I think the, the really, the, the, the uh, underlying theme of liver surgery is leaving enough liver behind that, that is well perfused and well drained and um, that can regenerate and um, sustain a patient. Because if you overdo liver surgery, and every liver surgeon knows this, if you, you, you then have to watch a patient slowly succumb to liver failure, which is a horrible thing, and it's the nightmare of every liver surgeon. Um, and, but it, and it happens, and it's, uh, it's lethal, and it's um, not always explainable <clears throat> in ways that you would think. So that's the point. And the, the techniques that you describe, two-stage resections, portal vein embolization, are essentially attempts to create a situation where you have enough liver at the end of that operation, whether it's one or two operations that'll sustain a patient. And I think you'd much rather have say two operations than have a serious risk of liver failure. Um, but I think it gets into real technical detail. And I, you know, it's, you can't really get into all of that, but I think that's the basics of it. And I think the other thing that people have lost track of is that our, you know, Liver surgery used to be you take out the right lobe or you take out the left lobe, and that was really why you couldn't deal with bilobar metastases. Now, we now understand you can sort of carve out small pieces of liver, leave blood vessels behind, narrow margins probably don't make much of a difference. Um, I think it gets into incredibly complicated decision-making when you're deciding whether to do it in one operation or two. Um, but I would say that uh, I, I often go to the operating room with patients and I say, uh, we may do this in one, we may do this in two, but I'm going to decide that in the operating room. And um, you'd much rather me be a bit conservative rather than take a big chance uh, with um, taking out too much liver. Um, the way I, I guess, I guess, I guess the main point, Chad, that when I think, and Amir, that when I think about this is probably the thing that uh, has changed this the most is not really what we talk about most in the meeting, the two-stage resection, the Alps and all that sort of stuff but rather actually the use of things like small wedge resections and intraoperative ablations. I still see patients who, who have a right hepatectomy because they have a single deep, tiny little tumor that could easily be ablated um, with equal efficacy. And this is easy to debate, equal efficacy to a, to a resection. You know, if you have a one centimeter tumor deep in the liver, not next to any major blood vessel, if you're reasonably facile with intraoperative ablation, 
that will work as well as resection. And, and to do a right hepatectomy, especially in the context of some complicated bilobar resection, whether it be one stage or two stage, is unjustified in my mind, because then suddenly you're putting the risk of liver failure there. Even if you are the best surgeon in the world, even if you do that operation perfectly with minimal blood loss and minimal trauma, um, taking out that much liver is a huge problem. So I think the use, the creative use of all our tools, Chad, has, be, has made this much safer for patients. And sometimes, unfortunately, it's two operations. Sometimes it's Alps, sometimes it's other things, but it's, um, uh, that's, that's the kind of the way I think about it. I guess I'll end on Alps, which is sort of, it seemed to be, seems to be waning in popularity. The way I actually think about Alps is that we haven't found a single patient at our hospital who needs one. And that we're generally not accused of sort of being, you know, uh, non-aggressive with patients. We're accused of the opposite usually. And um, so I'm not sure where it exactly fits in, but I, I think it's very rarely necessary, very rarely necessary uh, with all the techniques we have to sort of optimize a future liver remnant, be it surgical techniques, embolization techniques, or two-stage resections. We simply haven't found someone who needs it. So that makes me think that a lot of people are using it unnecessarily. That's the way I think about it. Dr. Gingelic, I'm going to ask another tough question in the sense that this is, again, uh, a huge topic. Uh, but again, keeping it sort of at the 30,000-foot uh, level, as Dr. Ball loves to say, um, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, sort of your planning preoperatively uh, when you're looking at these colorectal liver metastases? What are the, the important principles that go into your mind uh, when you're thinking about a resection? And then a little bit about um, sort of preoperatively and intraoperatively how you how you plan your operations are there some big things big principles in your head that that um that stick out to you even even uh, like i'm thinking here like um you know keeping the cvp low um like all these different considerations that that might go into your mind as a as a high volume uh, liver surgeon yeah so i think um first and foremost is technical ability to deal with um liver surgery, because if you're going to do creative parenchymal sparing operations or ablation or things like that, you need to know, you, you need, you need a few basic techniques. One is yes, and not to not lose blood in the operating room. Um, your anesthesiologist is very helpful with low CVP. And if you're staring at the vena cava, it's very, very easy to tell them what that CVP is. Um, I think the, um, judicious use of Pringle maneuver, if necessary, I don't use it a lot, but I think that's just from experience. I actually constantly tell my fellows, if you need it, if it's a little bloody or if it's a little, you can't see well, just Pringle. There's a million trials that show that it's not dangerous and it's actually, the, the outcomes are the same. So if you need it, use it. Um, uh, so I think, and, and then you need to, you need, basically you need to be able to sort of work your way through this opaque three-dimensional organ um, with the use of ultrasound and with the, some technique of dissection through liver tissue. Um, and I think, you know, basically you have to sit at a CAT scan, see where a tumor is, define the anatomic structures near it and have all the techniques to sort of carve out that tumor, whether it's taking out a lobe or taking out a small subsegmental piece of liver and, and basically dissecting through liver with, without a lot of blood loss down to specific structures, recreate what you see on that CAT scan in an operation um, with those techniques, with ultrasound, with dissection techniques 
that do not necessarily require sophisticated instrumentation. I largely do it with a Kelly clamp and a right angle or things like that. Um, and, uh, and, and if you can do that, then you can probably do any liver operation. You may do it slower than a more experienced surgeon, but you can do it. Um, the other thing I teach fellows is that when you come across, say, a vascular structure inside the liver and you're unsure of where you are, and anybody who thinks that sounds crazy has not done a lot of liver surgery, you can easily get lost inside a liver. And I, you, then you can clamp things and use ultrasound. And, you know, every once in a while, you'll be on something and you'll clamp it and go, oh, my God, that's not exactly where I thought I was. I don't want to take that. And uh, clamping and looking at ultrasound flow and all those techniques. So you need to do that first and foremost. You need to develop that technique. And I think having a reasonable volume of surgery is uh, necessary for that. And then I think how you use all that. My goodness, it's, it's, it's almost sort of endless variation about how you do it, but it comes down to the basic idea of making sure that you preserve enough well-perfused perfused liver at the end of the day. And, uh, I, you know, and I, I think it would take forever to go through specific examples of where to do a two-stage or where to do a single stage or when to use portal vein embolization. And uh, that, that would take a long time to go through. But I, I think... Uh, understanding that if you, you know, there are times in operations where you have to pause and say, am I going to continue? That's kind of the way I think about it. Sometimes I'll carve out a bunch of tumors on the left and I have to do a substantial operation on the right side of the liver. And I'll look at my fellow and we'll say, okay, let's stop. Let's look at the liver. Do we think this liver can tolerate much more surgery or should we delay this for another day? Um, and I tell all my patients to be, I'll be quite conservative about that decision because if I overdo it, uh, that that can be a that can be a lethal consequence, and so even if that event is rare, you want to minimize that event to a tiny, tiny number, if at all possible. I hope that answers your question. I think there's a lot of detail that can go into that that probably requires a year-long fellowship, to be quite honest. But uh, those are the basics of it, I think. That's that's amazing, Mike. Uh, you know, you're the masterclass you you've just given us in in uh, in hepatic resection. Uh, we can't thank you enough for it. I was wondering just before we finish, if you don't mind, we, we switch gears a little bit and, 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 you know, pull it back out and ask you as a, as a New York city guy, uh, what it's been like a little bit, if you're comfortable talking about it with the latest COVID-19 uh, insult, particularly in New York. And I would imagine just being a bit of an optimist, maybe delusional optimist by nature that uh, myself, that there's uh, probably been some great things that have come out of it as well again. Uh, oh, I'm yeah. Curious. Yeah, I'm curious how, how that's going there. Yeah, I'm with you, Chad. I, I think uh, if you're an HPV surgeon and you're not an optimist, you're in the wrong field. You have to be an optimist in this world <laughs> because you're always fighting something quite difficult. Um, yeah, so, you know, when COVID hit New York City, um, it was right at the beginning of everything. Uh, I was actually at the HPBA meeting when things really shut down and, and things were really becoming real. And I think at that time, you know, looking back on it, it's kind of hard to remember how little we understood at that time and uh, how whether masks would be important, whether whether social distancing really mattered. It was really a lot of unknown stuff. And I will tell you, Chad, I think it's really important. I think a lot of people see pictures of crowded emergency rooms and, and incredible situations. And I want to be really clear to everybody. I, I And I work at a cancer hospital. And yes, we had plenty of COVID patients, but we were not like the real heroes, in my view, who were at the, the city hospitals and uh, the bigger general hospitals in New York City, who really took the brunt of this, who really put themselves at risk. And I am in awe uh, and just so uh, respectful of, of the people who really did the work, many of whom will never 
ever be recognized for the things they did. Places like in Elmhurst, Queens, um, and parts of Brooklyn uh, that, that really saw uh, the real badness. Um, and I, I was a bit sheltered from that, and I, and I want to be super upfront about that. But what happened in New York was we saw the power of an infectious disease just take over New York. Um, and, and I have to say, we went through this period of time where we all kind of shut down and said, okay, we're, 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 uh, we're ready to sort of use our hospitals to deal with this. And anytime someone says to me that, uh, you know, I don't think this is a really dangerous virus. And, and I say, well, look, we had refrigerator trucks in New York city because the morgue couldn't keep up with the dead bodies. That usually illustrates quite well the situation and how, how this can overtake a crowded city like New York. And I think there are, many cities that are similarly crowded in parts of New York. And I think I would also point out that um, the people who suffered in New York were uh, the underrepresented, the minorities and the poor, because they live in places where they can't distance, right? And, you know, people like me, it's easy for me to distance, uh, but they can't because they're on top of each other in apartment buildings and, and they suffered the most. And um, I think we should never, never forget that. Um, but what, but being the optimist, Chad, you know, we came out of it and I, I am so proud of New Yorkers. I really am. I mean, New Yorkers just stepped up. I, I don't walk around New York City and see people sort of not wearing masks or I, I think people are just aware. They, they've seen it all. And they understand the danger. And uh, I even remember this during 9-11 when, you know, when, when the towers went down, New Yorkers got in line to donate blood. Sadly, the blood wasn't necessary, and they had to be. The, the lines were so long they had to be turned away. And I think they've stepped up again and just done whatever is necessary. Uh, and that's that's meant economic troubles. It's meant that a lot of businesses have um, collapsed. Um, but New York will rise uh, again, and uh, it, it already is. And I'm I'm with you, Chad. I'm an eternal optimist, and it'll come back. The New York right now is not the New York I know, uh, but it'll come back, and we'll we'll beat this. And I, I'll just say again, I'm just proud of the New Yorkers who just do the right thing and and really fight and uh, and do whatever's necessary to help their their own. And um, it's been really it's been quite a trip. I've lived through the AIDS crisis. I've lived through 9/11 in New York, and uh, this is this is something that I never imagined uh, could happen. But I guess the people who studied this stuff knew it was coming. <laughs> uh, most of us were sadly a bit naive and didn't know it was coming. Um, but we're getting back, and I think we'll see bits and pe problems here and there, and uh, hopefully with a vaccine, we'll get back completely. But it was quite a time, I'll tell you that. It was quite a time to live in New York. I have I remember walking around the avenues of New York with no cars on the street in mid to late March, and that's an eerie thing in New York City. But that's that's coming back. We're getting there. That's a beautiful and, and moving description of, of a city that's seen so much uh, adversity in the last uh, few years, last few decades. Um, just to, to make one more pivot here, you've been the fellowship director at uh, MSK at a very high volume center. Um, what are your advice for prospective fellows, uh, whether um, in terms of like even applying uh, and then uh, subsequently uh, as a fellow and I'm being a bit fellowship. Uh, I mean, I'm being a bit selfish here, given that I'm a fellow right now. What what tips and tricks do you have for for uh, applying to a good fellowship and then uh, and getting the most out of it? Yeah, it's a tricky question. 
I'm going to start by saying something that maybe is a little controversial. I, I actually think medical training is, particularly for people who want to go into academics, is kind of broken. I think, you know, we're graduating fellows now who are closer and closer to 40 years of age. And if you think about it, there are people who've gone into other businesses who are sort of already been working for 20 years. So I, I, I don't know. I, I think the problem is that people have gotten so good at trying to get into the best fellowships or the best schools or best residencies that they take take time off here and there and they um, it take more and more years and years and years of, of additional stuff to get into fellowships that uh, you know by the time they're done they're they're almost 40 years old and I, and I, I don't know if that's the right way to do this I think we have to fix this system and that's my backdrop that's my frustration um, I will say but I, but I'll, I'll answer your question more directly within the system that we have, um, first of all, I want to say that working with the fellows at a place like Memorial is, is truly the greatest privilege of my life. I mean, it is incredible. They are bright. They are our conscience. They constantly challenge us to think. Um, and, and frankly, they, they allow us to do the other things we do by simply taking care of our patients, by, by allowing us to, by helping us do research, by just being smart people who keep us on our toes all the time. Um, our, our fellowship has become, I think, focused on on sort of more academics. You know, the people that we take are, are very accomplished MD, PhDs, uh, incredible researchers. And I think that, you know, what I usually say when people ask me what I'm looking for in our fellowship is um, I'm looking for people who are going to go out and contribute things beyond uh, the care of the patient. Not to say that going out and being a surgeon and just caring for patients is, is a bad thing. I think that's an awesome thing. Um, but I, will, I think what we, the resources we have are best suited to train people who are going to go out and go into academics or education or even administration to help run programs. And so that's what we focused on. But I think there are other programs who should be focused on other things based on their strengths, whether it's clinical strengths or academic strengths, because we don't want to just train a bunch of people who are going to go into academics. That's, that's not what the world needs. The world needs every kind of surgeon. So how do you get into a good fellowship? Well, I would say, Amir, your generation has gotten very good at it. I did not think very hard about it in my life. And I guess maybe I was lucky. But um, uh, I, I think, unfortunately, to get into good fellowships, you need to do some research. You need to publish a little bit to get recognized. But I would say that um, publishing, excuse the term, publishing garbage or publishing a million uh, papers that you don't know much about is not necessarily going to help you. Good, good fellowship directors will see through that. But doing meaningful research or meaningful activities, people will see that. And they'll see true passion rather than people who are simply trying to play a game. And so I think being genuine is really important because um, I think people are, are willing, I can see through that. Uh, and, and being yourself and also starting to realize what it is you really want to do. I mean, a, a fellowship at a really academic place is not necessarily the right thing for someone who's going to not do that with their career. Frankly, it's a waste of time. Um, I also think that getting people to advocate for you is quite important. It, it's, it's very difficult to select residents or to select fellows and uh, getting people to advocate for you, whether that's a phone call or a really strong letter, um, is super helpful. Um, and I think, honestly, that's that's how life works. Getting people to advocate for you is how you get yourself into positions of power. And when I say power, not 
not power simply for the sake of power. I, I think of power as um, if, if you're using power for that, then, then something's wrong. But if you're using power to accomplish things that will really move a, a field forward, then that's that's good use of power. Um, so I, that's my best advice. I, I, I actually think my best advice is don't worry about trying to get into the best programs. My advice is get into the programs that will best suit what you want to accomplish in your career. And if that's to be the best surgeon, find the place that does the most surgery or the best has the best teachers. If that's to be a, a basic science researcher, find a place that will help you do that. If that's to be a, a program director, find a place that really has a big education program. Um, and, and start stop worrying about being uh, the guy with the best grades and find out and really focus it is uh, focus, focus on what it is you really, really want to do with your career. That's my best advice. That's fantastic advice. Um, in sort of in closing, and this has been a wonderful discussion, uh, and thank you again for, for giving us your time. Um, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice as a trainee, uh, now that you've, you've had your, your long and, and very successful career, how, what advice would that be? I hope my career is not that long. I think I've got a little while to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, probably a little bit of what I just said to you is to, I, I think when I was a resident, I was focused on just being the best surgeon I could be. When I was in medical school, I was focused on uh, learning the human body as best I could. Um, and then when I went and did a research fellowship, I was focused on being the best researcher I could be. I, I, um, I think at the time, nobody gave me the advice to really think a lot about what it is you want to accomplish in your career. I don't want to sound like I didn't get advice or I didn't have mentorship or teachers, but I, I kind of feel like I figured it out on my own with experimentation. And I, I wish that I had put more thought into um, what my strengths were and what I could, what, what I, what I could do. And I'd be a little bit more focused. I, I think if you looked at my career, it looks like I knew exactly what I wanted to do, but that would be not true. I, I wasn't exactly sure. And I, I wish I had thought more about it. I thought more about what my career should be like. I think I sort of fell into certain positions where I met certain people who really changed my life and gave me, whether it was intentional or unintentional men mentorship, um, I saw examples of things that I wanted to be. And, and that's really what I f focused on ultimately as I, as I moved through all this. Um, and I just feel that I, I'm just, I'm very fortunate. I, I, uh, fell into situations that gave me opportunities. If I were to give myself some credit, I really took advantage of those opportunities, and that's, that was good. Um, but I, I, myself, I would, I would sit down and say, really think about it is, what do you, think about what you want to do. Do you want to be a researcher? Do you want to be an academician? Do you want to be a community surgeon? Ultimately, I fell into exactly what I wanted to do, kind of by responding to the stimuli around me. But I wasn't, I could have easily gotten lost in that system. And I, uh, and I think if I was unlucky, I would not be in the position I'm in now. I would have had, wouldn't have had the opportunities to take advantage of certain things. So I, I wish I was given advice about, about that, about really thinking about my career. When I went into residency, all I thought about was I'm going to be a surgeon. And I didn't think much more about it. It sounds kind of simplistic, but that's, I wish I was thinking more about long-term career goals. Um, and uh, I think the current generation all thinks they want to be academicians. But I think that's because they've been told that to get into the best programs, to get into the best residencies, you have to be academic. The great majority of them will never, ever.
do any academics. And that's not a bad thing. That's just because that's the way the world works. Um, and nobody gives them advice to sort of, instead of the advice they get is to get into the best of the best instead of, instead of thinking about what it is they really want to accomplish with their life. And I think as Americans and Americans in medicine, we have what I call a prolonged adolescence where, where we're children and we grow up much later than most other professions. Um, and so that's, that's really what I, I wish people talked to me about, about that when I was younger and, and helped me think more about that when I was younger. I, I know it all looks like it was all perfectly planned, but trust me, that's not the way it is. <laughs> You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.